John chapter 4, I'm going to begin reading at verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Dear Lord and our God, we do thank you for your precious and holy word. And we praise you, Lord, that you are a God that has been revealed, revealed in the presence of the Holy Spirit, your holy word, and by Jesus Christ. May our pastor preach boldly and strongly with great joy and compassion. And I pray that the Spirit allows him to penetrate heart and soul of all who hear. In Jesus' name, amen. We are continuing to talk about what Jesus has to say about Christians who struggle with doubts. And Christians do struggle with doubts. It's a reality and it's something that is best honestly dealt with because God's Spirit, the Spirit of Truth, can comfort us. Sometimes it's love that makes Christians doubt the Bible. We know people, I know people and you know people who are good and who are kind, compassionate, committed, loyal, sacrificial to each other. In fact, the way they live their lives very often may challenge us to be better people. And yet, even though we love them with all our being, I mean, they may be sons and daughters, they may be close friends and family members, even though we love them and we would do anything for them, we would maybe give our lives for them, yet the way they live, the lifestyles they've chosen are contrary to the Lord that we love. And they say this is not just a sideline. They say this is what defines them. This is an essential part of who they are. And we're torn apart. I think for ordinary human beings, it rips us apart to know here's the Lord we love and the word that he's spoken and here's people that we love and the way they live. Should I tell them what I believe? If I don't tell them, am I being a liar? Am I being sort of hypocritical? What if by telling them what I believe, I drive them away? And there's people who can't live with that tension. I know several and maybe you know some who because of this tension have 
had such doubts about the Bible itself, about Jesus himself, that they've decided it just can't be true, especially on these kinds of topics. And they've walked away. There's questions on issues like this. There's tension in us as Christians. And sometimes that erupts into doubts. Now, I'm not talking today about whether various kinds of lifestyles are right or wrong. I did that some time ago, actually last year, but it's in October, November of 2020. And if you go to our website, graceforthewayorg and look under resources and sermons, and it's Jesus on life, and you'll see there's some on Jesus on sexuality. And we hear there, and it may help you to, if you have questions about that, we hear what Jesus himself said about these issues. But today I'm talking about something different. How do I love these people who are so dear to me, who I maybe work with or go to school with or are members of my family? How do I love them and at the same time love and honor God and his word? So I'm going to look at Jesus again. In this series, we are just focusing on Jesus. How does Jesus deal with this issue? So we'll look at his example first, then we'll look at some lessons that we can draw from that, and then finally, what the focus of our attitude should be. So let's start with Jesus' example. I think when you read the Gospels, it's clear this is not a theoretical issue with Jesus. And so when we turn to him, we see real examples. And if we look at our text, John chapter 4, here's the question. How does Jesus deal with a woman whose lifestyle is contrary to God's word and God's plan and design for humanity? How does God deal with a woman like that? So Jesus was in Samaria. That's sort of the background. He's tired. He's hungry. He's thirsty. He sits down at a well, and a woman comes there to draw water, as was her habit. And he asks her for a drink of water. And the woman is surprised at Jesus' friendly gesture. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus starts a conversation. And he makes this intriguing claim. And I want to read it again. Jesus said in verse 10, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you'd have asked him and he would have given you living water. And she says, you don't even have anything to draw with. Where will you get that living water? Verse 12, she says, are you greater than our father Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel? In verse 13, Jesus answered and said, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to life, eternal life. So he makes this claim, and really this claim is the focus. He wants the woman's whole attention to be focused on this claim that he's there to address her spiritual needs. That her soul is parched, and he himself is the water of life, who can quench the thirst in her soul. He wants everything focused there. So then Jesus asks a personal question. As soon as she says, yeah, give me some of this water, he asks a personal question which may seem odd to us. He says, sure, I'll give you some water. Implied, verse 16, go call your husband and come here. 
Now, why did he ask her this? I would be hesitant to ask her. We know as we read on in the text that he knew all about her lifestyle. He knew all about her sexual behavior. He knew about her marital status. He knew all this information. Well, why bring this up? Wouldn't this lead to like an argument about what's right and what's wrong and what the culture says and what God says? Would it maybe even make her defensive so that now she would be only concerned with defending herself rather than open to what Christ had for her? Won't this, in other words, distract her from the main focus, which is her critical need for the water of life? Won't she now go off on some tangent and start defending herself? But but watch what happens. Of course, she sidesteps the issue. In verse 17, Jesus says, you have said correctly, you have no husband. And then he tells her exactly what he knows about her, which is a lot. And then in verse 19, the woman starts to talk about something else. Sir, she says, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, why did Jesus bring up this issue? Now, you notice that he doesn't go back to that issue. He says, yeah, yeah, we'll talk about me being a prophet, but I want to talk about your life, your five husbands. He doesn't really do that. In fact, he lets her know even before the conversation goes on to a deeper level that he knows all about her. So we ask, why did he do this? Why did he bring up the issue of her lifestyle? Well, one reason is he wants her to know that he knows all about her, but he doesn't reject her. I know you've been married five times. I don't know what it was. Bad men? Five bad men? Maybe you're a desperate woman and you kept making bad choices. Maybe you're hard to live with, you know. Five guys couldn't put up with you. I don't know what it is, but now you're living with a man without being married. Sounds so modern, doesn't it? We think this is just a modern trend. It's not so modern. In fact, people today might be surprised to learn that the Bible is actually against it, that that's not God's plan for how we should live. But why bring it up? Why bring it up? He didn't press the issue. When she went off on a sideline in verse 19, he didn't make a moral judgment. He didn't talk about how wrong her lifestyle was. He didn't even tell her to stop living like that. There's no instruction of that sort at all. He just lets the conversation go in a different direction. So why do you suppose he brought it up at all? I mean, it's sort of an awkward issue, right? Personal, private, delicate. Why do you suppose he even brought it up? Of course, I don't know. All I know is what's in the text. But can we just consider at least two points? And maybe you can have some other insights also. I think here's one thing. I think Jesus was saying to her, you think you're defined by your race. Remember, she introduced herself. How can you, a Jew, talk to me, a Samaritan? That was the most important thing in that interaction to her. You think maybe Jesus was saying, that you're defined by your lifestyle. That's how you label yourself. That's how others label you. Oh, there's that Samaritan woman. She's been married five times, and now she's just living with some guy. You think that's how you're defined. You think that's your identity, but Jesus is saying there's something far more significant about you that you've completely missed, and that's that your soul is thirsty. You're parched spiritually, and only I can give you the water that can satisfy you. I think maybe he was saying that. You don't know yourself. Your definition of yourself, 
Your identity is not really what you think it is. Also, maybe he was saying something else. He says, I know all about you. You don't have to hide anything. You don't have to pretend for my sake that you're this or that. I know everything there is to know about you, and it makes no difference to my offer. I don't care who you are, what you've done. I don't care about your lifestyle. I know you need me, and only I can quench your thirst. So he didn't argue with her, you notice, about morality, about right and wrong. He didn't argue scripture. He didn't ask her to change her lifestyle. There's this laser focus, I think, on the water of life. If he had just changed her behavior, you notice, he could have left her just as parched as he found her. I mean, she might have actually changed the way she lived. Okay, I'll move out. Would that have helped her at all? Because there's many happily married men and women. Decades they've been married, and their souls are parched because they don't have the water of life. So he pursues her like a hunter. You know, she's dodging and darting this way and that way, and he's constantly pointing to himself. And finally, it concludes with verse 26. The woman said to him in verse 25, I know that the Messiah is coming. He will declare all things to us. And then Jesus says, I, who am speaking to you, am he. I'm the one. I'm the one you need. So with that in mind now, let's ask this question. Here's Jesus showing his love and kindness to a woman whose lifestyle is contrary to God's word. Was Jesus ignoring God's word? Was he being, in a way, dishonest? Was he, in a way, lying to her, you know, pretending that the real issue was this water of life business and not talking about this obvious lifestyle that was contrary to God's word? Well, let's look at how Jesus loves those whose lives are contrary to God's created order. And as you look at the Gospels, well, you could multiply the examples, but let me just give you a few. He said in Matthew 19 that marriage is between one man and one woman who are made one flesh for their lives. He says it clearly. He's quoting from Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. He says there's two genders and marriage is the union of a man and a woman. He says it clearly. That's what Jesus believed. He, in other words, was saying it's not just a cultural belief. In fact, if you look at the New Testament culture, read how the Romans lived, read how the Greeks lived. This was countercultural. If you go back to ancient Israel, read the practices of the tribes and cultures around Israel. God was calling them to a different way of living. This was not just the culture of the day. Jesus believed this was the way God created things to be, man and a woman in a marriage. He believed what God's word said in Genesis. So it was foundational for Jesus. You know, it's not something he can compromise and blow off. But do you see that nevertheless he loved this woman who was blatantly ignoring God's purpose in God's word? Both of those things were true. Why was she doing it? I don't know. Was she lonely? I think these days you could maybe make those guesses. Was she confused? Maybe she was taught wrong. Maybe she was never taught what God's will is. Maybe people accepted this in her little circle in her village. It was just a culturally accepted thing to do. Maybe she felt like there was really no choice for her. She was in such desperate straits that she had to have somebody in her life to provide for her. I don't know. 
But I know Jesus loved her. He befriended her. And Jesus' goal, and this is what you have to take note of, Jesus' goal was not just to change her behavior, but to water her thirsty soul. I think you'll get that from what I'm saying. But that's the focus. And when you look at it, isn't that the pattern of Jesus all through the Gospels? He ate and drank with and he befriended people whose lives were completely contrary to what God calls us to live. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says there's a fundamental choice everybody has to make between chasing money or chasing God. You can't have both, he said. And yet, what do we read? He met this man named Zacchaeus who had grown enormously wealthy by swindling his own people. He was a greedy man. And Jesus met Zacchaeus. He went to his home, had meal with him. Why? Because Zacchaeus was a parched soul. He needed the water of life. He condemned lust in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, no, you can't even look upon a woman with lust. And yet, he ate and drank with prostitutes, the Gospels say. Women whose very profession depended on men looking upon them with lust because they needed the water of life. He condemned hypocrites, especially he condemned the Pharisees as hypocrites. And yet, I know we think they're all evil, but if you read the Gospels, you see there were several Pharisees that he met with. He went, for example, and had a meal at the home of Simon the Pharisee because Simon needed the water of life. His heart was dry and hard and parched. So that's the first thing. If you want to clear up this tension, look at the example of Jesus. Maybe I could say the examples of Jesus in the Gospels. And that brings me to the second thing. So what lessons can we draw from this? First, and I think this is the most important truth, everyone is thirsty. Everyone is thirsty. We're all the same. We're all human. We're all fallen. You're thirsty. I'm thirsty. Every single person you meet is thirsty in their souls. We're parched. That means we can't be distracted by superficial things. We can't be distracted by their lifestyle. As though that's the issue. Don't be distracted. I think we fall into this trap of thinking that if outward behavior is right, then the soul must be right also. The Pharisees were experts at having everything right on the outside. And yet Jesus ripped them apart. He said they're like tombs that are serene and beautiful like a cemetery on the outside, but inside it's like rotting bones. They, of course, had the opposite evaluation of Jesus. Look, he eats with prostitutes and sinners. He must be evil. Look at the real need. That's the first lesson we have to draw. So Jesus' focus, you notice, was not on changing behavior. It was not on making sure the lifestyle fit in with what God had ordained, but it was to give life to dead hearts. That's where he focused. Imagine if I had a nice potted plant and it was just drooping over. And when you came and looked, the soil it was just all dry. You could crumble it. It would be like, almost like sand. And I said, oh man, this plant needs help. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put a stake in here. I'm going to tie up the plant so it stands up nice and straight. And you know, there's some dead branches. I think I'll prune them off there. Doesn't that look better? You say, you fool, why don't you give it some water? Obviously it needs water. And that's what we do with people. We just prop them up and we think we've given them what they need, but what they need is the water of life. They're parched. They're dying of thirst. And so that's the first lesson. People are thirsty, every single one. 
Everyone you meet is thirsty for the water of life. Here's the second lesson. Should I tell them the truth? Yeah, tell them the truth, but tell them the real truth. We think of truth as being over against love. Oh, I love them so much, I just don't know if I can speak the truth. Or we think, if I tell them the truth, they'll be hurt and run from me. So we think of love and truth in terms of making a statement, telling facts, maybe driving people away. Either I love them or I tell them the truth. But here's something that has struck me as I've been reading the Gospels. And it may be something you've noticed also, that telling the truth is not about stating facts. Telling the truth in the biblical way is not about stating creeds and doctrines. It's not about making statements about what is moral or immoral. In fact, in the Bible, truth is a person. Telling the truth is presenting a person. Remember what Jesus said in John 14, verse 6? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Presenting the truth is presenting Jesus. In John chapter 8, 31 and 32, he said, if you know my word, my word, what I say, then you'll be my disciples. And he says, this word will set you free. You'll experience liberation. The truth is presenting a person. So to tell the truth means sharing Jesus. It means every word that we speak, if it's a fact, if it's about morality, if it's about God's will, if it's about scripture, has to be uttered in a Jesus kind of way, with the character and the spirit of Jesus behind it. Otherwise, we're really not speaking the truth. So we represent Jesus whenever we claim as Christians to speak the truth. So we can recite doctrine, we can recite morality and facts from the Bible, but we have to do it in the spirit of Jesus, or we're not really representing the one who is the truth. Let me just bring to your mind a story that you've heard from the Bible. It's in John's Gospel, chapter 8, in the opening verses. A woman is brought to Jesus and those men who drag her there say she was caught in the very act of adultery. And it seems that she's thrown on the ground in front of Jesus. Now, there's no doubt how Jesus feels about this. He knows adultery is wrong. I quoted some scriptures from the Sermon on the Mount where he talked about this. Now, of course, these men didn't care about right and wrong, really. They weren't concerned about morality. This woman was just being used as a tool, really, by them to try to trap Jesus. So, Let's dismiss those men and focus on Jesus for a second. What does he do? Here they are standing with rocks in their hands, ready to pelt her because they say she was caught in adultery and she should be killed. That's what the law says. What does Jesus do? Well, read the story yourself. He stands up for her. He stands up between her and all these men. He defends her. He lets her know that he's with her. Yeah, she doesn't ever deny that she did this, but he lets her know he's with her. And then when everyone has left, when Jesus has challenged them, whoever is without sin, go ahead, throw your stone first. They all leave. When everyone has left, he says, neither do I condemn you. And then he says to her, go and sin no more. You see, the words came from one whose love she could never doubt. She knew that Jesus was with her. See, that's the Jesus way. Truth is not just a statement of facts. 
the truth is presenting Jesus himself. And every word we say, saying it in a Jesus kind of way. And then here's the third lesson, I think. This is the day of grace and salvation. There will be a day of judgment. This is the day of grace and salvation. I read in the beginning of the service from John 3, 16, but also 17, where we're told that Jesus came into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world. And we are messengers of that. So our job is not really to dig into what's happening in a person's heart, because we can't. God's doing it, and His Spirit is doing that. His Holy Spirit is at work in people's life. We leave that to our Lord, but our mission is simple. Everyone is thirsty. Everyone. Christ is the water of life. So everyone needs Christ. That's our focus. So then with Christ's example, with some lessons, let me just summarize with what our focus should be. I would say don't be distracted. I think I would be distracted if I was dealing with this woman at the well. Don't be distracted. We're all parched plants in need of the water of life. That's all we are. And we have to see people that way. It's not about lifestyles, even though people may say that. People may say, that's what defines me. That's what's essential about me. It's my identity. That's what's essential about me. It's not about achievements. It's not about failures. It's not about how people look. It's not about race or ethnicity. It's about thirsty souls. Everything else is superficial. I'm not saying anybody else in the world will agree with us about this, by the way. But we know this as God's people. Everything else is superficial. Of course, it seems obvious to us in many ways. And I think it dawned on me very slowly. I don't know if you feel this way, but sometimes you meet somebody who looks different, who's living in a very different way, and you feel kind of withdrawn. I have to be careful. I don't know what they think. I don't know what she thinks. I don't know what he's going to say. And it dawned too slowly that I'm judging people by superficial things. You know, the clothes they wear. Here's a guy with leather and chains. Here's a guy with a three-piece suit, and I, I make assumptions about them. Here's someone who's covered in tattoos. Here's someone who's clean cut. I make assumptions about them. Here's someone who's been married for 50 years and here's someone in a relationship that is not what God wants. And I make assumptions about what's happening spiritually in their hearts. But I saw that when I talked with them, they're just like me. Really, what's going on in their heart is just like me. I mean, they're, they want to, well, they want to laugh. They want to be loved. They're worried about their loved ones. They want to be happy. They're trying their best to be happy, and they're thirsty. They're thirsty, just like me. They're thirsty. So superficial differences can distract us from seeing spiritual reality, and we have to be careful about that. So what's the focus? Well, focus on Jesus, who is the water of life. Let's never be distracted from that. How about my lifestyle? What do you think of that? Yeah, yeah, I know. You've had five husbands and the guy you're living with is not your husband. Fine. But now can we talk about what really matters? See, that's what Jesus did. What will you do with Jesus? That's what I want to know. Jesus is the continental divide in our lives, in in society, in history. There's a line that stretches from Alaska down to the tip of Chile in South America. It runs along the mountains that go on the western edge of those two continents. It's called the Continental Divide. If a drop of water, if you can imagine, falls a little bit to the west of that Continental Divide, 
in some way, through rivulets and streams and rivers, it'll make its way into the Pacific Ocean. If that drop of water falls a little bit to the east of that continental divide, then through rivulets and streams and rivers, in some way it'll make its way to one of the parts of the Atlantic Ocean. And Jesus is that continental divide. What will you do with Jesus? Everything will be different depending on how you answer that question. And friends, we have to be laser-focused on that. Not on changing behavior, not necessarily on arguments about right and wrong, but on parched souls being watered with the life of Jesus. So what do we pray? We pray that our loved ones, those that are so dear to us, we pray that they would not try to quench that thirst in mud puddles or in streams that are polluted. We pray that they would quench that thirst finally with Christ Jesus our Lord. So I close by saying keep praying. Keep longing for Christ Jesus to water their souls with himself so that their lives become like a well-watered garden. Amen. Lord, how can we not be thinking of particular loved ones at this moment? How can we really not even be thinking about ourselves, how far we are from what you want us to be? We thank you, Lord, that you accept us, you receive us, that, that you care about our loved ones even though they may seem so far from you. And we do pray for them as we pray for ourselves, Lord, that over and over and over again, as often as we feel that thirst in our souls, we will come to you. And Lord, we pray that these dear ones that we love so, so much would find their satisfaction, that their thirst would be quenched in knowing the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. God is the Redeemer. He redeems, he saves, he brings us to himself. I love this chorus. Let's close with this hallelujah chorus of praise to our Savior and then a word of benediction. God asks a question in Isaiah 55. Uh, Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. Eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. You know, we all want what is good. I think every human being, we want to be happy. We want to be loved. We want to have somebody waiting for us, somebody who cares for us, somebody who watches for us. All of us do. And, you know, relationships are God's provision for that. We love companionship and intimacy. 
and closeness with people. But here's the truth, that our souls are most satisfied when we find our thirst quenched by knowing and serving our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Isaiah says this in verse 1 of the same chapter, 55, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. So to all who are thirsty and tired, I say, may, may the Holy Spirit of God renew you. And may the water of life refresh you. Amen.